Let's turn, please, to the Word of God, the Word of Life this morning. The book of Genesis again, we're in chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, and we'll read together from verse number 1. Genesis 18, verse number 1, last Lord's Day, we began a short series that we trust will take us up to the end of the year thinking about those times in the Old Testament whenever the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared in a manifest way to individuals who had great needs in their lives. Let's never restrict the ministry of our Savior to the New Testament. There are many times in Old Testament Scripture whenever the Savior, the Lord, appeared in a pre-incarnate way. The word is Christophany. And we're looking at another one this morning. It's good to know that whatever our needs are, whatever our faults may be, whatever our feelings may be, whatever our burdens, trials, and difficulties might be, the Lord is able to meet us. And we pray that He'll meet with us this morning. Genesis chapter 18, verse number 1. Let's hear the Word of God. Let's follow along, please as we read God's precious word. Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts, after that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come to your servant." And they said, So do as thou hast said. And the Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And the Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. 
Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men arose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence, went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. God will bless the reading of his precious word to every heart for his own sake and glory. Now, will you turn with me again, please, to the book of Genesis and the 18th chapter And we're going to just give an overview of this chapter as we think about Christ himself, we believe, meeting with Abraham, a Christophany, the second one that's mentioned in Scripture. Let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts. And we're so thankful that whenever the Lord draws near, burdens are lifted. We thank God today that he's a God of new beginnings And he's able to meet us all at the point of need and turn our situation around. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we once again thank thee for the word of God, for the precious book that we have in our hands. We rejoice that this is a living word. And even now, Lord, we can come to thee, the author of this book, and ask our God to open our hearts and our understanding and our ears. O God, we pray that you will so work in our hearts today that we might be stirred and encouraged and led on with thyself. Lord, thou knowest how much we need you. Lord, come, we ask, glorify the man of Calvary, grant the help of the Spirit of God, and Lord, we pray that you will speak to all of our hearts. Glorify, magnify, And exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray with confidence and with thanksgiving. Amen. I'm sure most of you this morning are aware that the book of Genesis is often referred to as the book of beginnings. In fact, that is something of what the word Genesis actually means. There are so many Bible doctrines so many biblical principles and so many biblical promises and practices that are found in this first book of the Bible in Genesis form, in embryo form. We see so many doctrines in their commencement here in the book of Genesis. So many foundations are laid down in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book of the Bible. And yet, while the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, it is also a book, I believe, that points in many ways to the end times also. 
The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings, but also a book that points to the last days as well. We see the Israel-Arab conflict in the book of Genesis with Israel and with Ishmael. And that is something that is very much coming to the fore in these days that we are living in. The Lord Jesus Christ said concerning the last days that they would replicate in many ways the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Matthew 24. And then in Luke chapter 17, the Savior said that the last days would be akin to the days of Lot. And we know something of the generation that Lot lived in and all of the immorality that was going on. The rise and the prevalence of homosexuality and sexual immorality is seen in Genesis. And the Lord seems to indicate that in the last days these things will come to the fore again and there will be all sorts of confusion in that regard. Then the book of Genesis also speaks about Nimrod and the rise of Babel or Babylon. And if you read in the book of Revelation, you have Babylon rising again, a kind of mystery religion that unites so many religions under one head and is very much a, a secular force in the world as well. And whenever the Tower of Babel fell, Babylon was uh, typified as falling, I believe, in the last days as well. So Solomon was right when he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 that there is essentially nothing new under the sun. So much of what we have in Genesis will come to bear again, maybe even in a more manifest way, in the closing days of time. But here in Genesis chapter 18, we have something of the days in which Lot and Abraham lived, the characteristics of their day and generation. And I believe that in this particular chapter, we see something of the characteristics of the church in his days, the people of God in his days. And we see that mirrored in this day and generation as well. For many, it was a day of unbelief. We see that in Sarah, Abram's bride. And we also see what society was like in Abraham's day and Lot's day. And of course, we see that coming to fruition in our day and generation as well. But we have also something very personal and very wonderful in this chapter, and that is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Whenever he manifested himself as a man, he didn't take on the nature of man until the incarnation in Bethlehem, but he revealed himself at times in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, or as a man to certain individuals. And we have that here in Genesis chapter 18. Verse number 2 says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men stood by him. Three men stood by him. And it is immediately clear that one of these men is the Lord himself. It says in verse 1, the Lord appeared unto him. It says in verse 3 that Abraham addressed one of them and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee from thy servant. In verse number 13 it says, The Lord said unto Abraham. Verse number 14, the Lord says, I will return unto thee, 
according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And then again in verse number 22, Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And so it's very evident that out of these three men, two of them were angels, and one of them was the Lord. And we're going to look at this Christophany. Christ appears to Abraham. Notice or consider, first of all, the context of this Christophany. We have said already, three men came and stood before Abraham, and were persuaded, as we have said, that one of them was certainly the Lord Himself. Verse 22 says, The men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Chapter 19, verse number 1 says, There came two angels to Sodom at evening. So Abraham stands yet before the Lord, and the other two men have gone towards Sodom, and they are revealed in chapter 19 as being two angels. But the third man, I believe the central man, was the Lord himself. I believe there was one standing in the midst, and Abraham realized this man is distinct, and he addresses him as the Lord. And the Scripture reveals him as being the Lord as well. And it's always a wonderful study to look at those times in the Scriptures whenever the Lord is described as being in the midst. Whenever he was 12 years of age, he was found sitting in the midst of the temple, in the midst of the doctors of the law. He said in Matthew 18, where two or three are met together, there am I in the midst of them. Whenever he was crucified upon the cross, it says there were two thieves that were crucified, and the Lord was crucified in the midst. He was the central figure. And then whenever he appeared to his disciples in the upper room, the Bible says, Jesus himself appeared and stood in the midst of them. And then in Revelation, you often read about the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Now, you'll notice in chapter 18 and verse number 2 that the Bible says that whenever Abraham lifted up his eyes and lo, three men stood by him, he saw them and he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and addressed one of them and said, My Lord. And that indicates that Abraham bowed in worship. Now, Revelation chapter 22 reminds us that angels are not to be worshipped. John in the Isle of Patmos saw an angel and fell down before the angel as if he was about to worship, and the angel said, See thou, do it not. Worship God. Angels are not to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said that even to Lucifer, whenever he was being tempted. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him alone shalt thou serve. But here we have Abraham worshiping the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ. Whenever the Lord appeared after his resurrection, some of his disciples came and laid hold upon his feet and worshiped him. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And so you'll notice that Abraham bowed in worship. And Abraham, in verse number 3, addressed him as Lord and makes his request and says, Pass not 
away, I pray thee, from thy servant. There's something magnetic about the presence of Christ. There's something that draws us to Him as believers. Whenever He comes to us, there's something within our hearts that doesn't want to miss out on the presence of our God and the presence of our Savior. Some of you today that are saved and have known intimate times whenever the Lord draws near, it might be in a public meeting. It might be as you're reading the Word of God privately and seeking the Lord's face in private. It might be at a time in your life whenever you're overwhelmed with a sense of need and there's trial or maybe sickness or bereavement or disappointment and somehow the Lord at such a time draws near and His presence is so real in your life and you don't want to lose the presence of God. And Abraham is very much aware of this. Pass not, I pray thee, away from thy servant. Like the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke's gospel, whenever the Lord himself drew near and went with them and they were discouraged, and the Lord began to quiz them and question them, and they got honest with him and honest with each other and honest with God and expressed their discouragements and even their disappointments that this man that they were following had been crucified and, and he had died and now his body has been removed and they do not know where he is. And they had supposed that this was the Christ. And the Lord opened the Scriptures and beginning at Moses and all the prophets spoke unto them the things concerning himself and their hearts began to burn within them. And then they entreated him, Luke chapter 24 and verse number 29, Abide with us, for it is towards the evening, the day is far spent, and he went in to tarry with them. This was a wonderful experience of the Savior drawing near, but initially their eyes were holden. But whenever their eyes were opened and their hearts began to burn, they didn't want to lose or miss out in the presence of the Savior there's something magnetic about that. There's something truly in the heart of a man or a woman born again of the Spirit of God. That whenever the Lord draws near, they are drawn like the Shunammite, drawn with cords of love. And they don't want to miss out in the blessing and in the presence of God. And surely we notice here as well that our Savior, our Christ, our God, loves to meet His people at the point of need. He loves to fellowship with His people. He loves to draw alongside us. In fact, this is one of the great purposes of God in redemption and salvation. And I fear that we often miss this. I often repeat it, but it bears repetition. We have this idea that salvation is a ticket to heaven, being delivered from hell. But salvation at its very core is being reconciled to God, being brought into covenant union with God, being brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So many times the New Testament says God has called us into the fellowship of His Son. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. And yet, there are so many that profess His name but have no real desire to have fellowship with Him. Even in the churches, 
We have turned, I believe, to many other things. And we can be so often like the Laodicean church, increased with goods, rich and respectable and self-sufficient and self-seeking and self-satisfied. And the Son of God standing at the door and knocking on the door of the church, a stranger in the house of his friends, wanting fellowship, saying, if any man opens the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. I want to sit with you and talk with you and listen to you and eat with you and dine with you and fellowship with you. And yet, friends, if we're honest, don't we miss that so often? But whenever we know the Lord's nearness and we know the Lord's fellowship, we never, never want to lose that. You'll notice as well how Abraham accommodated for the Lord. He was very hospitable. He says in verse number four, Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And then verse number five, he brings a, a morsel of bread and kills the fatted calf, and he, he wants to be hospitable. He wants to make room for these men and these entertaining angels unawares. But somehow he seems to know that the central figure is the Lord himself. And he wants to wash the Lord's feet. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we see in the New Testament? John chapter 13, the Lord taking a basin and getting down beside his disciples, Judas included, Thomas the doubter, Peter the denier, and the Lord washes the feet of his disciples. And then he says, you ought to wash one another's feet. And I tell you today, if believers, of Christian people, humble themselves in a figurative manner to wash the feet of other Christians, there would be a lot less trouble and strife in the church. The Lord washed the feet of Peter, who would deny him. The Lord washed the feet of Thomas, who doubted him. He even washed the feet of Judas, who betrayed him. And that takes great humility. And then in Luke's gospel, we have the account of a great sinner, a woman in the city, and she came with her alabaster box, her box of ointment, worth approximately one year's wages, and she broke it, and she anointed the head of her Savior, and then she got down at his feet, and she began to wash his feet with her tears. What a remarkable act of devotion. But if the Lord draws near to us, and we really see him as he is, we would count it no great thing to wash his feet, even with her tears. The context of the Christophany. Notice, secondly, the characteristics of the Christophany. Last Lord's Day, we mentioned that Christophany's pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in Old Testament times were to reveal Christ in a special way, to meet special needs, to communicate special truths, and also to accommodate special tasks. And here God meets with Abraham in a special way so that Abraham might fulfill special tasks and that Abraham might receive special truths. And the Lord in this chapter reveals two specific truths to Abraham, one concerning his family and another concerning the nation. First of all, in verse 9 through to verse number 15, the Lord speaks about the conception of Sarah. The conception 
of Sarah. And you'll remember, if you were with us last Lord's Day, that there was a lot of controversy in chapter number 16 of the book of Genesis. And Abraham acted in the flesh, and he took matters into his own hands. And that resulted in heartache for Abraham and for Sarah and for the nation at large. But in chapter 17, the intervening chapter, something wonderful and something remarkable happened in the life of Abraham. See, in chapter 16, his name is given as Abram. And Abram's a young believer. But in chapter 17... And in verse number 5, we read these words. And this is something remarkable. It's not merely something incidental. God said to Abram, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And you'll notice a subtle change in the name of Abram to Abraham. And the Hebrew letter that God puts into Abram's name is a name that, or a letter that expresses a breathing, Abraham. And I believe it's a picture of a man being filled and touched anew with the Spirit of God in his life. A man that's being infilled by the Spirit of God. Abram, I'm changing your name now to Abraham and God as he utters that very word and that subtle change is breathing and touching Abram's life in a new way. And Abram is becoming Abraham, a man filled with the Spirit of God. And in conjunction with the change of his name, God reiterates and re-echoes his promise that I will make of thee a great nation and thou shalt be fruitful. And the promise of fruitfulness also incorporates a promise for the land, for the nation, for the land of Canaan. Verse 8 of chapter 17, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so it's no surprise today that in that part of the world there's still a lot of controversy between the children of Israel and the children of Ishmael, especially regarding the land that God gave to Abram or to Abraham. This promise then in chapter 18 and verse number 10, as Abraham stands before the Lord, and the Lord says to him in verse number 10, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son, And God re-emphasizes this great promise, which certainly by this stage, more than ever, is a physical and biological and scientific impossibility. Because we're told in chapter 17 and verse 17 that Sarah is now 90 years of age. Have you ever heard of anything more ridiculous than a woman 90 years of age giving birth to her firstborn son. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, impossible. 
And yet sometimes that's how God moves in spite of physical, circumstantial, biological impossibilities. God can still work and God can still move. And sometimes the promises that God give us have to die in order for God to be glorified in their fulfillment. And it seems now that Abraham and Sarah have reached a place where they have to throw up their hands and say, well, Lord, there's absolutely nothing that we can do to make ourselves fruitful or to fulfill your promises. Lord, it's up to you, but Sarah is still at a stage where there's unbelief within her heart. And she laughs at the promises of God. And I believe that Sarah is a very real picture of the bride of Christ, the church, in this day and generation that we're living in. God gives us promises for blessing and promises for revival, promises perhaps for our homes and for our families, promises for His church and for His people, promises that even in the last days He will pour out His Spirit in all flesh. He will be exalted in the world, exalted in the nation, he will build his church. He will come again. He will rule in righteousness. And I believe today that many of God's people are like Sarah. And they're laughing at the promises of God. And it's the laughter of unbelief. God, any rivers you think are uncrossable. God, any mountains you cannot tunnel through. God specializes in things thought impossible. He can do just what no other could do. Maybe today in your personal life, you're facing a mountain of impossibility. Circumstances are hard. You think about your children, your family, your loved ones, your circumstances, and you think this is a mountain, and I cannot tunnel through it. God said to the children of Jacob in the book of Isaiah, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. I shall make thee a sharp threshing instrument having teeth. And he promised that he would bring mountains flowing down at his presence. Sometimes we justify our unbelief. Sometimes we justify our barrenness. We justify our fruitlessness. We blame it perhaps on the spirit of the age. I believe many have done that. But friends, today, let's trust God. Let's trust God for a better day in our nation. Let's trust God for a better day for the church of Jesus Christ. Let's bring God's promises back to His throne and, and remind them of what He has said in His Word. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of God shall lift up a standard against him. And let's acknowledge before God, Lord, there's nothing that I can do to facilitate that promise or to try to crowbar the power of God into my life by manipulating the will of God in some smart way. Let's acknowledge like Abraham and Sarah, Lord, we can't do it, but Lord, you can. And Lord, we're yielding ourselves afresh to you to fulfill your promises in our day, in our lives, and in our generation. Unbelief and mistrust surely are an offense to God's ability and God's integrity. Even whenever Sarah laughed in unbelief, God did not remove the promise. But rather, God re-echoed the promise, renewed the promise, repeated the promise, and ratified the promise. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 13 says, If we abide in unbelief, He's still faithful. What a God we serve this morning. Sometimes our faith is very, very small. 
But God is still faithful, and God is still able. There's a a word to Abraham in this Christophany regarding the conception of Sarah. But there's also a word to Abraham regarding the destruction of Sodom. Look at what it says in verse 17. Whenever the men arose from thence and looked towards Sodom, and off they went, the two angels, Abraham went with them to bring them in the way, and then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? The psalmist said, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. Abraham is in the place in his relationship with Christ where he can still hear the voice of God. Sadly, his nephew Lot who was still a righteous man, according to 2 Peter, was no longer in the place where he was conscious of the speaking voice of God. He had pitched his tent towards Sodom. Chapter 13 of Genesis. Chapter 14 of Genesis, he was living in Sodom. And then you read later on, and I think it's chapter 19, that Lot sat in the very gate of Sodom, a place of influence and responsibility. But the problem was he couldn't hear the voice of God anymore. But Abraham was still in the place where he could hear God's voice. Christian today, are you in a place in your walk with God where you can hear the voice of God? Or do you come to God's house and sit and sleep with your Bible closed? And during the week you never open your Bible, you never pray, you never talk to God at all. It says in verse number 19, God says concerning Abraham, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. What a testimony Abraham had. God says, I know Abraham. He will command his children after him. Can I speak to the fathers this morning in this meeting? Can I speak to those of you whom God has blessed with children and grandchildren? I wonder today, can your children see something of Christ in you? Can you command your children after yourself? You know, I I have seen many children brought up in free Presbyterian homes. And they have testified, my father was a legalist. He was quick to chastise us, quick to correct us quick to hammer us with the Word of God, screwed us into the ground, if you like. But whenever he was in the home in the secret place, we didn't see all that much of Christ in him. What a tragedy. But I don't know sometimes what my children see in me. I'm sure sometimes they say, well, Dad's a a technical dinosaur. Maybe they, they think, I don't know, maybe I don't want my children to look at me and say he's got this great gift and talent and ability. All I want is for my children to see something of Christ in me. Somebody that they can say, well, if I follow in my dad's footsteps, it might not lead me to be a successful businessman or someone that's done really well in education. I pray that they'll do well in life, and I'm sure you do for your family also, that they'll do as well as they can with the ability that God has given I think every young person should strive to be the best that they can be in every area of life. But I would love it if my children, whenever I'm dead and gone, could say, I followed in my father's footsteps. 
And it took me to the Bible. It took me to the place of prayer. It took me to the feet of the Savior. You know, I feel the Lord often. I think we all do. But I wonder, can God say concerning thee, I know him. He will command his children and his household after him. That's the type of father that we need to be in these days. Sadly, Lot took his wee children into Sodom. And Lot's daughters married ungodly men. And they perished in the destruction of Sodom. And in all likelihood, they would never have been there if Lot had been like his uncle Abraham and was spiritual rather than carnal. Men tonight, in our, or this afternoon, in our meeting, what about our children? If they follow our example, where will that lead us? You know, sometimes we look at the city of Sodom and it says that their sin was very grievous and Abraham's going to hear now that God's going to destroy Sodom. And we immediately, most of us think, well, we're not like Sodom at all. Sure, they were perverts and they were rapists and they were homosexuals and they were just a bunch of, you know, whatever name we want to put on it. But did you ever read in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, and verse number 49, whenever God speaks to the city of Jerusalem and says to Jerusalem, this was the sin or this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom and the three sins that he lists, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. And he never mentions the sexual immorality. Sometimes we look at that, that's the big sin. But the Lord says this was the problem with Sodom. And it's the same problem in Jerusalem. And it's the same problem in the church, pride, gluttony, and laziness. Pride, gluttony, and laziness. Respectable sins that we can so easily cover up. And those were the things, more than anything else, I believe, that grieved the heart of God. This was the iniquity of Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. And it's very easy for us in our warm, respectable, comfortable churches to look outside these walls at the parades in Belfast and Londonderry and other places and say, well, there's the, the homosexuals, the pride movement, and say, we're nothing like them. But in our hearts, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness. Maybe we're a lot closer to the spirit of Sodom than we think. Then there's one last thing and we're finished. We've thought about the context of the Christophany and the characteristics of the Christophany. And then the consequences of the Christophany. You'll notice that Abraham's primary response to the word of God to his heart regarding the conception of Sarah and the destruction of Sodom was to pray. Verse number 22, Abraham stood yet before the Lord. It says there at the beginning of verse 22, the men turned their faces from thence. That's the two angels. Chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels uh, came to Sodom at even. 
But one of the men, the Christophany, the Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, stood yet. The two men went on. The central figure stood, and Abraham stood yet before the Lord and began to talk to him. Said, Wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? You know, I'm convinced today that any professed encounter with Christ that does not lead to real intimacy and prayer with Christ needs to be questioned. Whenever Saul met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he became a man of prayer. The Bible says, Behold, he prayeth. And Abraham becomes a man with a burden and a man with boldness. And God sees Abraham's integrity, and now he's listening to Abraham's intercession. And Abraham begins to pray for the cities of the plain, for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll notice how he prays very famously. Verse 24, if there's 50 righteous within the city. Verse 28, if there's 40 and 5. Verse 29, if there's 40, 30, 20. Right down to 10. And he says in verse 32, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but this once. Peradventure 10 be found there. And the Lord says, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. Why did he stop at 10? I believe he was thinking primarily of his family. Because if you study this chapter and the chapter before and the chapters after it, you'll remember that Lot went down to Sodom with his wife, and that makes two. The Bible speaks about Lot's sons-in-law. So he had at least two sons-in-law, that makes for four. If he had two sons-in-law, he had two daughters-in-law. And that makes for another two. And then it also speaks about his sons. That's at least another two. And then it also speaks about his daughters that weren't married. And if you add it all up, you've got at least ten. And I'm convinced that Abraham was praying for Lot's family. And praying for his own family. Because he had heard God's voice. And he knew that there was a day of judgment coming. And all of a sudden, Abraham becomes a burdened man because he loves his family. He's burdened. And he's praying for his children. Just like our Savior, whenever he beheld the cities, the Bible says he wept, he was moved with compassion because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Somebody once said, we are never more like Christ whenever we are on our knees interceding for others. What about our families today? Growing up in these days that are a lot like the days of Lot. Christian mother, Christian father, husband, wife, son, daughter, does it call us to pray for our families? Leonard Ravenhill wrote a little poem once. Could a mariner sit idle if he heard a drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and let his patients die? Could a fireman sit at home and let men burn and give no hand? Can we sit at ease in Zion and the world around us damned? There's something, friends, radically wrong with a professing Christian who knows that their family and their loved ones are lost and they never give themselves to prayer. As believers, we have access to the throne of God itself. 
and there's a world around us that needs our prayers. Is it not a very insensitive thing? Is it not even a very selfish thing to just say, Lord, give me my daily bread. Lord, meet my needs. Lord, help me. Lord, guide me. Lord, direct me. Lord, bless me. Make my life successful. This whole prosperity thing. And never utter a prayer for our children and our grandchildren and our nephews and nieces and friends and loved ones that are lost. See it, Spurgeon once says, have you no wish for others to be saved? This is see it, Spurgeon. Have you no wish for others to be saved? then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. What a statement. Have we a burden, friends, today for the lost? God is looking for intercessors like Abraham. Ezekiel 22, 30, God says, I sought for a man to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge for the land that I should not destroy it, but found none. Will God find somebody here like Abraham that'll hear God's voice, that'll lead and live by example, and then give themselves to praying in these days that we're living in. Abraham's day, not unlike our day, a barren bride. But God made her fruitful. Church today, by and large, in this nation is barren. But God, I believe, can make us fruitful. A society that's lost, that needs our prayers. May God bless his word to your hearts this morning. Thank you so much for your attention. And may God write his word upon our hearts. We had a closing hymn, but I think we should just close in prayer and just spend a moment or two being still in the presence of God. Let's just bow our heads and still our hearts before God's throne. And maybe God has been speaking to some. I'm sure He has. His Word is a living Word. And in spite of the preacher, in spite of the pastor, I believe that God perhaps has been speaking. And let's just unite our hearts together. And if God has spoken to your heart, make that response just now. Let's pray. Loving God and everlasting Father, we think of the day and generation, Lord, that we are living in, a generation that needs God. Lord, we pray that Thou will come to our hearts this morning. And Lord, we pray that You will speak into our lives. Help us, O God, to be like Abraham, who hearing the Word of God and the promises of God in this chapter became a great man of faith, and Sarah as well, and also became a great man of prayer. O oh God, I pray for this heart and life of mine, Lord, not thinking about anybody else now other than myself. O oh God, I pray that you will make me to be a man of God, man of prayer, who can lead by example. O oh God, bless every home and every family every father and every mother, and let us hear thy voice in these days. And Lord, maybe there's one in the meeting now that does not know thee. Lord, we pray that you'll rescue them and bring them unto yourself. Part us now with thy fear and with thy favor and with thy blessing. Take us to our homes in safety. And now may the blessing of God the Father, the love of God the Son, and the comfort and anointing of God the Holy Spirit rest and abide with us now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.